From famous historical locations easily found on a map to the lesser known areas found maybe even in your own hometown, history leaves shadows that people in the present can still see. Let's find out their stories together on this episode of Historically Haunted. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Historically Haunted. My name is Ariel and I hope you guys are ready for a spooky episode. This episode I am going to be talking about Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. It is a notoriously haunted location and this place has all kinds of paranormal activity that happen day and night. Before I get started, of course, I wanted to thank you all so much for giving my show a listen and I'm announcing that I got two new Patreons, so I would like to thank Amy and Kara for supporting the show. Thank you guys so much. I will be sending you out a thank you card and some stickers in the mail in the beginning of next month. And all your support is greatly appreciated and it helps me keep the show going. You guys are awesome. I also got a couple of new iTunes reviews, which is really exciting because I was going through a lull where I wasn't getting any. So I am really glad that I got a couple new ones. Just a side note before I read them, I hope my voice sounds okay. I'm dealing with a lot of smoke still in my area, so much that I can't even like see down my street still sometimes. So if my voice sounds a little scratchy, it's probably due to smoke. So anyway, the first um, iTunes review I got was from FSU Braves 711 and it says, This is a great podcast. It combines two of my favorite things, history and paranormal things. Plus, I like the way Ariel delivers the content. The episodes are always informative and well done, and I look forward to listening to them. So thank you so much for that review, FS Braves 711 And I also got one from Alyssa KL, who said, I recently discovered this podcast and love it. I love anything cryptid and haunted, but this podcast is one of the best. Thank you both so much for those lovely reviews. Any reviews I get help other people be able to find the show, and it also lets me know that I'm doing a good job and going at least in the right direction with my show. So thank you guys all so much again. Okay, so I said in the beginning that I'm going to be talking about Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, and this is one of the most haunted places in the United States. But I also wanted to warn you that some of the things that have happened at this location might be disturbing to some people, so I wanted to give you a warning right away. This location has a history that is full of of sadness, murder, and disturbing barbaric practices, and it might not be suitable for all audiences. So if things like talking about lobotomies and people dying in really disturbing ways bothers you, then you might want to skip this episode. With that being said, if you are ready to join me as I talk about the history, then you will really be looking forward to the crazy paranormal activity found at this location. But first, we're not doing monstrous moments this time. We are going to be talking about some really cool urban legends. The day I'm recording this is officially the first day fall and you know what that means it is officially Halloween season and during Halloween season I love to crank up that spooky dial so I thought it would be fun for me to talk about some spooky urban legends found in different locations throughout the United States so without further ado let's start talking about a few spooky urban legends found in the state of Mississippi
Every state has its urban legends, and the state of Mississippi is no exception. The state has several legends and ghost stories that send chills down people's spines. I'm going to be starting with the Witch of Yazo. The story goes that in the early 1800s, a woman lived on the Yazo River. The woman was a witch and liked to capture and torture local fishermen. When word spread of her evil doings, local sheriff went out to investigate, and the woman saw him coming and ran off into the woods, and a chase happened, and then she got caught in quicksand. As she was sinking to her death, she turned to the sheriff and vowed revenge by cursing the town. Allegedly, she yelled at the top of her lungs, "'In twenty years I will return and burn this town to the ground.'" After her death, no one gave this threat much thought, but sure enough, 20 years later, a fire started in town and in the end it burned down 300 buildings. After the fire was put out, locals thought back to the curse and the witch that put it onto the town. Some townspeople went to the Glenwood Cemetery to check out her grave and they found a large chain that was wrapped around her gravestone had been broken in half. Now people claim to see the ghost of the witch wandering around the graveyard laughing maniacally. Another famous legend is the story of the three-legged lady. There are two scary versions of this story. The first version is that you can race the three-legged lady by driving to the church on Nash Road. Nash Road is a very creepy, empty road in the middle of the woods. And the deal is you are supposed to go to the church, turn off your headlights, and honk your horn three times. Then you wait. If the lady comes, she will knock on the roof of your car three times, and then she will appear next to your car. The objective is that you have to race her down the road, and she will try to run your car off the road by slamming into the side of it. And let me say, that is one competitive ghost. That's kind of how I would imagine the ghost of Monica from Friends would be acting if she challenged you to a race. Anyways, once you get to the end of the road, she will apparently vanish, especially if you win. The second version of this story is more of a tragic ghost tale. This legend states that there was a satanic cult that once kidnapped a young woman and killed her in a ritual. They then spread her dismembered body parts in the woods next to the road. Some people who drive on this road at night claim to have seen the ghost of this girl's mother crying out for her missing daughter, holding the only body part she could find her leg. Our next legend says that the ghost of Stucky's Bridge has been seen by many people. This legend says that a man named Stucky owned a local hotel near the Chunky River. It's too bad Mr. Stucky wasn't known for his hospitality. It appears that Stucky was known to rob and then kill his guests. After one too many of his guests turned up missing, he was caught by locals who hung him from the bridge that spanned the Chunky River. The locals let his body stay up there to decompose for several days until finally somebody cut him down, leaving his body to land in the river below and float away. Due to the legend, the bridge is now called Stucky's Bridge by locals, and several people have reportedly seen the ghost of Stucky walking along the bridge at night. Others have a more frightening encounter with this ghost in the form of residual energy. Some have claimed to see a body of a man hanging by the bridge and when people stop their cars to get out and investigate, they hear a splash down below and the body and the rope mysteriously vanish into thin air. Our last urban legend in Mississippi takes us to Crybaby Bridge. Many states and small towns have a Crybaby Bridge legend and Dennis, Mississippi is no different. As legend has it, a woman got pregnant out of wedlock and to hide the baby from her family and the shame she would have experienced from the locals in her town. She had her baby in the woods and then went to the bridge to throw her baby off of it, leaving it to die. Now people say that they hear the baby's cries off in the distance and some have even looked down to see a ghost of a baby on the rocks before it vanishes before their very eyes.
I just love these small town spooky urban legends and I will be finding so much more of them to tell you about during the Halloween season. But don't worry, our Monsters Moments hasn't gone anywhere because in the next Monsters Moments in our very next episode, I will be telling you about the Banshee. In the meantime, don't forget to email me your personal paranormal stories at historicallyhaunted.313 at gmail.com. Also, if your town has any spooky local urban legends, make sure you tell me about it. Please email them to me and I'd love to read them on my show. Did you know that rating and reviewing your favorite podcast shows on iTunes is one of the best ways to help others find the show? Also, sharing the podcast with your friends and family will help spread the word that Historically Haunted is out there and waiting to be listened to. Please go to my website, historicallyhaunted.net, for more ways to support the show, like links to my Patreon page and more. For thousands of years, people just didn't know how to handle or what to do with someone who was different than them. This is a black stain that has followed us throughout history, and though people don't want to talk about it, I think it should be at least discussed, especially for this episode. Once I heard someone say that back in the day, families did not have so many people with autism or mental illnesses. It was meant to be one of those back-in-my-day kind of moments, but she really wasn't old enough to truly stand by that statement. What that person was really leaning towards was back in their great-grandparents' day, or about 100-plus years ago. But this is not even close to the truth, and maybe that's what our ancestors wanted us to think, because the truth was just too painful. The sad reality is that many people were born with things quote-quote wrong with them, and the answer to this was sometimes appalling. I did a little digging into this subject, and I found an old Roman law that actually talked about how they dealt with people who were proven insane that committed a crime versus how they dealt with just your average person committing a crime. This shows that way back in Roman times, they were aware of people who had disabilities and mental illnesses. Fast forward to the Middle Ages and, well, let's just say that they don't call that time period the Dark Ages for nothing. During this time period, people were extremely superstitious, so anything different had to be the work of the devil, right? And just a quick disclosure before I go on, whenever I keep saying something quote, quote, wrong with them, I'm really exaggerating it. Obviously, I know that that's not how that works anymore. I just mean it from a historical standpoint, like what those people in that exact time and moment would have thought. So sadly, many people thought that if a child was born with anything at all wrong with them, it was either the work of witches, they were cursed for something they did in their past, or the devil was possessing the person. And this, of course, led to painful exorcisms that were unnecessary and led to just lots of sorrow and pain. I also dug around into some old beliefs where some people thought that the 
fairies had switched their own healthy child for an evil child that was not fit for the world. Some families would even hide the fact that they had a child with something odd with him. So they would either do this by sending their child away to a convent or church with hope that they would be looked after there. Or sometimes, sadly, if there was something really glaringly wrong with their child that others could see right off the bat, they would often kill the child and say that they lost it in childbirth, or they would say that their child got sick and died shortly after birth. Even as you enter the Victorian period, families would sometimes hide their children in attics of their homes and pretend that they did not even have the child to the masses. And if you had any mental illnesses, boy, did you have to hide that fast. If the person did not have any family members to help them out, they would often be thrown into jail and were housed with common criminals. During this time, things like autism, anxiety, ADHD, cerebral palsy, epilepsy, schizophrenia, and so much much more were not even understood or even had a proper name yet. So people just did not know what to do and many people just flat out panicked to try to fit in. It is really messed up and sad, but thankfully not everyone was this awful. There are also many stories out there of loving parents doing their best for their kids, even though the villagers might have thought that the whole family was unholy. In the late 1700s, facilities were created to hold what they called the insane, but they were made as more of a drop-off zone for families wanting to hide the fact that they had someone with a mental illness in their home. They were created as a place to hide people with disabilities and mental illnesses from the world, not to help them. By the late 1800s, the public's mindset of the mentally ill had shifted into a more humane course of action. And now, of course, thanks to modern medicine, science, and psychology, we have a much better understanding of how to help others cope with lots of disabilities and mental illnesses. While today it is still not perfect, we know so much more than we used to, and we also try harder to make people feel included and do a better job to help them out. I like to try to stay positive and think that it's only going to get better for people like us with disabilities and mental illnesses. While I want to say it was all sunshine and rainbows during the late 1800s, I would be lying. It was becoming evident that something needed to be made available for people who needed help. And while it did not end up being a good place, it started out with the best of intentions. The idea of having a self-sufficient location where people with all kinds of disabilities and mental illnesses could come and live to get help sounds like a wonderful idea. However, it quickly turned into a place that now sends shivers down someone's spine when you say it out loud. Asylum. I cannot talk about the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum without first talking about a woman named Dorothea Dix, or Nurse Dix as she was called during the Civil War. Dorothea Dix was born in Maine in 1802. Her upbringing was anything but good. Her mother was mentally unstable and her father was an abusive alcoholic. She was the oldest sibling and Dix had to become the head of the household and practically raise her two younger brothers. She was an incredible woman who did not have any formal education, yet she was able to open her own private school for young girls at just age 15. During this time, there was almost no educational opportunities for girls in her area. Five years later, she went on to open a new school in Boston. In 1841, she visited a jail in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and she witnessed appalling treatment to mentally ill inmates. Many were chained naked to walls in their cells, and what she witnessed changed her life. She went on to become an advocate for change for the mentally ill, and the Massachusetts state legislature caught wind of her exposing the truth of the conditions to the public, and the legislature authorized funds to improve the conditions for the mentally ill. She went on to travel throughout the United States and the UK and Asia, 
exposing the barbaric treatments of people with disabilities and mental illnesses. She later became the superintendent of the Union Army Nurses Division during the Civil War. I bring her up because I feel like, like so many great women before her, Nurse Dix is overshadowed by the men who helped her see her vision through. During my research, I noticed that many articles brought up the Thomas Kirkbridge plan when talking about outlines followed by the asylums of the time. These articles never once brought up the fact that Nurse Dix was working closely with Kirkbridge and that many of what was in his plan was her ideas. Thankfully, the main website of the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum did not forget her and gives her credit where she deserves it. And I wanted to do so on this episode as well. Thanks to the tireless efforts of Nurse Dix showing the world how badly they needed new facilities for the disabled and mentally ill, there was a push in the United States for there to be buildings built specifically for people who needed a safe place to live. The Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum was one of those buildings. The Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum is located in Weston, West Virginia. They began construction on the building in 1858, but it was interrupted when the American Civil War broke out in April of 1861. As a result of the war, the Union had all non-war-related construction put on hold, leaving the building about halfway completed. The building and surrounding grounds were then named Camp Tyler and used to house Union soldiers. The southern part of the building that was already completed was used as barracks and the foundation was used as stables. Camp Tyler changed sides several times with Confederate and Union raids in the town. After the war ended, the asylum opened its doors in 1864. The government did not completely finish the building of the asylum until 1881. The building was designed in the Gothic Trudeau Revival style. Following the Kirkridge and Dix plan, the building was designed to have long wings on either side of a main clock tower. This building design was meant to give the residents lots of good airflow and natural light. The idea was to make the whole facility self-sufficient. This way, the patients would have something to do to stimulate their brain as well as learn valuable life skills. The asylum had its own farm for fresh produce and meat. It had its own dairy, waterworks building, and cemetery were all located on its grounds. By the end of the construction, the land that the asylum was on stretched to exactly 666 acres. The number 666 is supposed to be a bad number, and I will be talking about that when I do the ghost section. The hospital boasted that they had state-of-the-art technology and medicine to help the mentally ill. It was advertised to be a modern solution for an outdated problem. Other than the part where the asylum was on 666 acres, on paper, this sounds like a great place to send people who needed help. But the reality of the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum was anything but sunshine and rainbows. When the asylum was built, it was meant to only house 250 patients. But many families flocked to the hospital in hopes of finding a safe haven and help for their loved ones. This quickly led to overcrowding. By 1880, the hospital housed 717 patients. This led to the staff to become stretched too thin and proper care of people became harder to administer. Another big problem was that they housed all kinds of people and did not separate the mentally ill from the criminally insane. By 1931, the hospital changed its name to the Weston State Hospital. The hospital's overcrowding situation only got worse. In 1938, it housed 1,661 patients and the numbers kept increasing until they peaked at 2,600 in the 1950s. There were reports of poor sanitation and bad conditions. The facilities were also lacking furniture, lighting, and heating. The hospital was turned into more of a dumping ground than a safe haven it was meant to be. During my research, I found a real list of reasons people were brought or sometimes forced to live at the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, and the list itself is insane. When I read this actual list of reasons people got sent here, 
I just could not believe it. So I'm just going to read you a couple of things. It's kind of a long list, but it's not as long as the actual list I found online. And it'll give you the gist of just how perfect you had to fit into society or else you could get threatened with being thrown into one of these places. I have a link in the show notes down below with the actual lengthy list. So if you want to see it, the list that I looked at is from 1864 to 1889. And here are just some of the things you could get thrown into the asylum for. Novel reading, especially if you were a woman. Imaginary female trouble. Hysteria. Immoral life. Overaction of the mind. Overstudying. Political excitement. Bad company. Bad whiskey. Carbonic acid gas. Death of sons in war. Desertion by husband. Female disease. Exposure and quackery. Asthma. Tuberculosis. Fighting fire, masturbation, disappointed love, the war, time of life, women trouble, menstrual derangement, childbirth, laziness, grief, rumor of husband murdered, loss of limb, fall off of horse, and greediness. And this is only a super short list of random reasons why you could get thrown into the asylum without needing much proof of anything. You could just be brought there, someone could give you one of these bogus reasons, and boom, you're locked up for life. You can see why, especially for women during this time period, there was a pressure for them to be absolutely perfect and fit the mold of society. Many reasons on this list could have been completely made up by families or husbands in order to get rid of people that they just didn't want to take care of anymore. Also, many men use this as a way to ditch their wives and move in with their mistresses. If you were not crazy when you entered the asylum, the conditions were so bad that you could start to have real mental health problems during your stay. And let's not ignore the people who actually needed real medical attention, like people who had epilepsy, autism, schizophrenia, manic depression, PTSD, bipolar disorder, ADHD, anxiety, and head injuries. The asylum also housed violent patients and people who were found to be criminally insane. So as you can see, this was an overcrowded hospital that was full of people with a wide ranges of issues. The hospital did not do a very good job of keeping the violent patients away from the rest either. In 1930, a TB hospital was built on the property, so they added that to the mix, and several other auxiliary buildings came and went on the massive property. In the early 1950s, Weston State Hospital was chosen for the West Virginia Lobotomy Project. The purpose was to use lobotomies as a way to reduce the populations in asylums because this hospital was not the only one that was overcrowded at the time. While the lobotomy then was thought to be a big modern solution, today we know that it was not the case. Sadly, many people had to endure painful treatments that really didn't help. If you don't know what a lobotomy is, I found a really good way to describe it from an article I found on LiveScience.com. The article basically says that a lobotomy is an umbrella term that is used to describe different operations that were purposefully damaged parts of the brain in hopes that it would treat a mental illness. During the late 1800s to mid-1900s, doctors thought that many kinds of mental illnesses were due to neurological connections that were not wired properly in the front temporal lobe. So they thought that If they could break the connection, the rest of the brain would heal and work properly again. Obviously, this did not work, and it was extremely painful and unnecessary procedure. One of the procedures included cutting a hole into the skull of the patient and then injecting ethanol into the brain to kill the fibers and neurons in the front of the 
temporal lobe. Another procedure was even more barbaric. The doctor would insert an ice pick through the eye socket of the patient, and they would use a hammer to purposefully damage the connection of the front of the brain. This was often done with no anesthesia, so absolutely horrible, and the side effects did way more damage than help. Most people that had these procedures done lost all personality that they had, and many became completely numb to the world around them, making them completely helpless. Sometimes the side effects made the patient worse, and they would become violent when they did not start out that way. In the end, lobotomies were not the right choice for all who had to endure the pain. Electroshock therapy was also used at the asylum, along with ice baths, bloodletting, and insulin coma therapy. By the 1980s, the hospital's population had been reduced, but the staff was still outnumbered. Patients who could not be controlled by doctors were forced to be locked in cages or confinement cribs, sitting in their own filth for days. The heating still did not work properly, and the lighting was poor due to electrical issues. The Charleston Gazette had reporters cover the appalling conditions many times. Each time they talked about the appalling conditions inside the hospital, it brought public outrage outside the walls of the hospital, especially from families who had loved ones living inside. With the work of the Charleston Gazette and outcry from family members of patients, the governor at the time, Arch Moore, announced plans for a new psychiatric hospital to be built in the state, and the old asylum was officially closed in 1994. The hospital was the town's main source of income for 100 years, so when the hospital closed, it had a negative effect on the community. Today, the huge Gothic-style abandoned hospital with its empty hallways and leftover medical equipment is a ghostly reminder of the lost souls of the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Today, the building is a National Historic Landmark, and what is left of the surrounding grounds is privately owned. According to their website, the owners want to restore the building back to its former glory and help the local economy. They conduct historical and ghost tours of the building. They also have special events in October, like Asylum After Dark Flashlight Tours, Zombie Paintball, and they even do a haunted house inside the building itself. All the money they make goes back into restoring the asylum. If you think you are brave enough to take a tour in this building, you might want to listen to the paranormal experiences others have had in the asylum first. Some of the evidence even seasoned ghost hunters have captured is disturbing and dark. Let's take a trip into the building and hear some of the fascinating paranormal activity that goes on in these eerily empty hallways. Hey guys, I just wanted to take a quick time out and ask you a question. Did you know that 1 in 10 people have dyslexia? You might even have it and not know it. Dyslexia is a learning disability that affects reading, spelling, and sometimes math, but it has nothing to do with low intelligence. I know because Einstein himself had it. Oh, and I have it too. Many people go undiagnosed, but it is important that you know the signs so that you can get help right away. The faster you know your child has it, the faster you can start doing things differently so that they can start thriving in school. And if you're an adult who also might have it, remember, you are never too old to ask for help. Please go to dyslexia.org to find out more or my website, historicallyhaunted.net, and click on the Information About Dyslexia tab. Okay, back to the show.
There is a reason this place always makes it onto the top 10 most haunted places in America list. Countless stories have come out of Trans-Allegheny, from someone saying that they think they saw someone walk past a door, to someone claiming that they had a frightening encounter with an evil dark entity. The asylum has been featured on many big paranormal TV shows like Ghost Hunters, Ghost Adventures, and Paranormal Lockdown. As you heard in the history portion, the people who were housed in these walls suffered immense physical and psychological torture. With the asylum housing violent criminals who were found to be criminally insane, it should not be a shock to find out that there were several murders, suicides, and violent death that happened within these walls. Let's not forget about at its peak, the asylum was on 666 acres. The number 666 is found in the Bible in the book of Revelation, and it is known as the number of the beast. People took the beast to be the devil himself, and the number 666 is the devil's number. There are a few numbers, such as 3 and 13, that are considered unlucky and hold an evil power, but the number 666 is mostly connected to the devil himself. In chapter 13 of the book of Revelations, it says, Let the one with understanding reckon the meaning of the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. So I'm going to take you down a quick rabbit hole. Bear with me. The number 666 in the book of Revelation sounds worrisome, but modern historians actually think that the number 666 is not even connected to the devil. They think that the verse is actually a riddle that the writer thought people would understand. The New Testament was first written in Greek, and the words we read today don't have the same meaning as when they were written. If you really look at the verse, it says in English the word reckon. Sounds ominous to us today, but in Greek, it actually means calculate or solve. So historians think the goal of this riddle was to find out who the beast really is. I will give you a hint. It is not the devil. Scientists and historians actually think the number 666 was a secret way of calling out Nero Caesar. Nero Caesar was the emperor of Rome from 54 to 68 AD. Nero Caesar was hated by basically everyone who was in his way. Caesar sent his armies to gain more territory for the Roman Empire, and he made sure to kill anyone who stood in his way. Many people thought that Nero Caesar was pure evil. So back to the text from Revelation, like I said earlier, it is in ancient Greek except for one portion, the number 666. That is purposefully written in Hebrew so it would stand out. And if you numerically translate the Hebrew spelling of 666, you actually spell out the words Neurochezer, which in the Hebrew spelling was for Neuro Caesar. So is the number 666 actually the devil's number or was it a way to secretly warn you and call out the evil man that was was in charge of the Roman Empire. I will let you be the judge. And regardless of what historians think, today the number 666 is thought to be the devil's number. And many think that since the acreage stood on 666, it meant that the grounds was a perfect place for evil energy to come and go as you pleased and leave vengeful spirits to linger. The graveyard located on the property holds well over 2,000 souls, and the absolute horrors of this place leave the walls stained with so much emotional and physical torment and energy. During its operation, staff were not even safe from the dangerous conditions of the hospital housed. Many staff members were beaten up, killed, and raped. Many patients killed themselves or each other, and it was basically hell on earth. So, maybe the 666 number is fitting after all. Even when the building was 
in operation, staff shared whispers of the building being home to many ghosts. While still in operation, a doctor claimed that a ghost followed her home. Staff reported hearing the sounds of wheels of a gurney rolling down the tile floors of empty hallways, and staff reportedly saw ghosts walking through solid walls many times. When the building officially closed down was when people really started to notice just how many ghosts were left behind. Since the moment the owners of the asylum started letting people tour the hallways, the reports of people hearing the sounds of screams, crying, maniacal laughter, moans, disembodied footsteps, and voices have happened on many occasions. There are reports of a ball of light that likes to float quickly down the hallways before it vanishes at the end of the hall. Full-bodied apparitions have been seen everywhere at this location. On the first floor of the main building, there is a ghost named Ruth. Ruth apparently hates men, and she has been known to throw things at male tour guides and guests. Occasionally, she even likes to pin them up against walls, and she also likes to whistle. The banging of pipes have been heard all throughout the building, as well as doors opening and closing on their own. One account of what I call excessive door slamming happened to a manager of the asylum. She said that once she was walking down one of the hallways when she witnessed all 40 of the doors slamming shut all at the exact same time. Unusual smells have been reported throughout the building as well as the sound of screams coming from the electroshock therapy room. Many EVPs have been captured, including a hostile one that said, get out, in ward number two. This room has a sad past. Two patients committed suicide and one was stabbed to death in this room, and it is said that all three of them haunt the space. The third floor of the main building holds ward F. Ward F is the maximum security ward that housed dangerous patients. Due to overcrowding, many people who were mostly dangerous to themselves got placed with people who were violent to all. This area had a gruesome double murder happen here. There were four men in one room, and one of the men inside the room was a serial killer. The serial killer and another man killed the two other men inside the room. And honestly, how they did it is so disturbing that I decided not to talk about it on the show. But if you want to know for yourself, it's very easy to Google it. The men who died are said to haunt the room and give out many EVPs. This ward is also famous for having shadow figures cross throughout the hallway. These have been seen day and night, and they happen very frequently. There is also a ghost of a man that they call Big Jim that is seen wandering throughout the halls. This area is also home to a ghost nurse that they call Elizabeth, and she is seen as if she is still going about her rounds. I found a very sad story of a nurse who went missing, and then they found her rotting corpse at the bottom of an unused stairwell two months after she vanished. I don't know if this is her ghost or not, but this is just another sad example of just how bad this place really was. At Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, no floor is as famous as the fourth floor. The fourth floor has high shadow figure activity, but it has something even darker. The fourth floor is home to the creeper. And if you listen to my Waverly Hills episode that I did last year, I also talked about a creeper. No one really knows what this is, but most people seem to think that it is a dark entity that likes to hang out in buildings that have housed so much pain and death. Some believe that the creeper is an entity that manifests because of the energy from the pain, sorrow, anger, and fear, and massive death that happened within the walls. Paranormal investigators seem to think that all those combined is the perfect energy for there to be a creeper. Other sanatoriums and asylums also have been known to have their own creepers. It is always described as the same thing, a dark black mass that is human-shaped, and it crawls along the floor and up walls and even across the ceiling. Anyone who has ever had a run-in with these creepers is always left terrified. This is one thing I never want to see, day or night.
The asylum has been featured on every big paranormal investigating TV show, and Paranormal Lockdown went to check out the building and stayed in it for three nights. They think they caught the creeper on video, and I have to tell you, when I saw it, it actually scared me. And yes, I know, it's a TV show, it could have been completely faked, but I really don't think this one was, because it wasn't Knick or Katrina that reacted this time. It was the cameraman, Rob. And the cameramen, usually on these shows, never hardly say anything unless something actually freaks them out. So in the scene, they were up on the fourth floor and Nick and Katrina were just talking to Nick. They weren't even really starting it. They were just kind of talking about maybe doing like an EVP session. And then all of a sudden, Nick's focus on his camera goes in and out and it starts focusing on something down at the very end of the hallway. And he starts freaking out and he tells them to stop. And he says, I see something at the end of the hallway. You guys need to stop. Stop walking. Wait. And then he just focuses on it. And he's like, what is is that. Now keep in mind, what we see on the television is not what Nick and Katrina see. So Rob is seeing the viewfinder through night vision. Nick and Katrina can't see anything because they didn't have any lights on. It was pitch black at the time. If you haven't seen this episode, it's actually episode one, season one of the old Paranormal Lockdown TV show. And I highly recommend that you guys check it out because it is one of the most compelling video evidences of something that doesn't look human I have ever seen. It's kind of hard to explain, but I'm going to do my best. So what he sees in the viewfinder, Nick and Katrina can't see again because it's pitch black in the hallway. Rob tells him to stop because he actually, I believe at first he thought it was an animal because what he saw was, and you can see it, it looks like a something, a big snake or a human on the ground who is literally dragging himself across the floor to get into a room. And then it just kind of slithers into this back room. Of course, Nick and Katrina check out the room. It's empty. They look through the viewfinder. They see it for themselves and they actually got really wigged out as well. It's very creepy. Could it be the creeper finally caught on camera? That's what most paranormal investigators actually think. TV show ghost hunting shows have caught all kinds of other paranormal evidence at this location, and many of these spirits seem to be intelligent hauntings. On Paranormal Lockdown, Nick and Katrina invited Amy and Adam from Ghost Hunters, and now they have their own TV show called Kindred Spirits. They invited them to go on a ghost hunt with them for a little bit on one of the nights they were there, and Adam decided to sit on Nick's camp bed on the fourth floor where Nick had spent the night. Adam had a recorder going, and after a while, he got scared after hearing some banging noise down the hallway and he went to find the group. When he found the group, they played back the recorder and they found an EVP that said, hello, Adam. The whole group freaked out because while Amy and Adam were on the Ghost Hunters TV show, they had investigated the asylum for one of the episodes. So that shows that there are some ghosts that seem to remember who comes through. The fourth floor is also said to be haunted by a ghost soldier named Jacob. I could not find out if he was a Union or Confederate soldier, but he mostly is seen pacing back and forth down the hallway before he vanishes. Another famous ghost on the fourth floor is a ghost child named Lily. According to legend, Lily was either dropped off by her parents because they could no longer care for her anymore, or she was born in the asylum while her mother was a patient there, and Lily was forced to spend the rest of her short nine years behind the walls. In both versions of the story, she passes away at age nine from pneumonia. Whether that story is true or not does not really seem to matter because there have been countless stories of people seeing a little girl in a white dress playing in the hallways of the fourth floor. Lily also loves to hang out in a room that is filled with toys. Visitors to the asylum like to bring Lily toys and they have filled a room for her and any other child spirits that might want to play. 
Lily loves to play with staff and guests. In this room, dolls move on their own, balls move around by themselves, especially when asked nicely by investigators, and sometimes a music box plays by itself. Intelligence responses happen often, whether it's audible noises that you can hear without any equipment or during EVP sessions or when using a geoport or spirit box. In the episode from Paranormal Lockdown, they got access to a building that had never been investigated before up until that time. The building was once used as a women's ward, and they were still with the tour guide not even investigating yet when Nick thought he saw someone just standing in a doorway. So Nick and Katrina turned on the recorders and they caught an EVP. Nick asked, did I just see you? And they got an answer, yes. Then Katrina asked, do you know you're dead? And the response was almost a shocked, no, like, I don't know I'm dead. What are you talking about? When they actually went to investigate the building, they got an interesting reaction from the geoport. It sounded as if there were a lot of ghosts that wanted to talk, and then there was a main ghost telling them, no, don't talk to them, don't trust them. Moving objects is also a common occurrence on all floors of the main building, from leftover medical equipment to chairs to gurneys moving on their own. Personally, my biggest fear would be to be in one of these locations and see a wheelchair roll out into the hallway on its own. Ugh. <laughs> People have claimed to see that happen at this location, so I don't know if I would be brave enough to visit. While today the asylum is considered a paranormal investigator's playground, I hope that we all never lose sight of the sad history that happened at this location. It is a stark reminder that we can do better by just showing someone a little more compassion and actually try to help those who need it most. What do you think? Would you be brave enough to go inside the walls of the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum? If you do, keep an eye out for the creeper on the fourth floor. <laughs> enjoyed this episode of Historically Haunted. I know I had so much fun researching and making this episode, but I think I say that about every episode. So in the end of the day, it's just you guys, my listeners, who make this so fun for me. Thank you all so much for riding on this journey with me. I feel like my podcast has gotten a lot smoother since I first started. And I'll tell you what, Putting a microphone in front of your face takes a lot of getting used to, but I do finally feel more comfortable with it being in front of my face. Make sure to check out my website and my Patreon page for more ways to support the show. Links to those are down below in the show notes, as well as add me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Historically Haunted. Links to those are also down below. And before I go, I just wanted to say, if you've ever sent me an email, thank you so much. I really appreciate getting to know you guys on a more personal level, and especially talking with people right now is a great time. There's so much going on in our world and it's just so nice to hear from everyone from around the world. So thank you all so much for those great emails. Thank you guys so much again for listening. I've been your host, Ariel, and I hope you guys have a fantastic next couple of weeks. And remember, Halloween is coming, so get ready for more spooky content. I can't wait to see you guys here next time on Historically Haunted. Bye, guys.